Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. And we're continuing with our value series called DNA, right? You are the church. We are the church. (laughs) Values we should live by. And um, tonight we're talking about spiritual family. But here at Every Nation, we don't differentiate between natural family and and spiritual family. They function very much the same way. And we value family. We value our physical families. Um, One of our little mottos and statements is that we will not sacrifice our families on the altar of temporal success, whether that's ministry or personal. Our families are priority because that is God's order, right? First God, then your spouse, then your family, then the rest of your life. And... um, This is a a topic that is quite close to my heart. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to read you a little story of my life. When I was born, my mother almost died giving birth to me due to toxemia and edema, which means that I almost died before I even got to see my first day. My dad got on the phone to some members of the little Baptist church my parents were members of, and before we knew it, people all around the country in churches we didn't even know about were praying for us. In a very real sense, the church saved my life. All those faithful Baptist intercessors beseeched heaven on our behalf, and both of us were spared. And there is a very real chance that if my parents were not members of a local church, which had access to the universal church throughout South Africa, I wouldn't be preaching here tonight. I am told that I attended my first church service when I was around six weeks old, and except for a short year or so, just before I was officially saved and added to the church, I have been attending ever since. I grew up in a culture where church was not an option. It was a big chunk of my life, and like it or lump it, I was there every single Sunday morning. At first, my concept of church was of a building or a place my folks took me to, But as I grew, I began to realize that church was much more about the people who gathered in the building, that it was much more about what those people did together in that building, and that the church building was not the only place where those people met to do those things. Jess, I've left the clicker on the chair there, but I'm wondering if you would be gracious enough to click for me tonight, (laughs) because that thing hates me. I need to take it out for tea or something, but it does not like me. Um, And so tonight we're talking about spiritual family, and as you can see, there's a very real testimony (laughs) in my life about the power of spiritual family and the benefits of spiritual family. And the Apostle Paul actually gives us this beautiful picture of of what the spiritual family is and how it works. In 1 Peter 2 verse 4 to 5, um, he says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is our cornerstone. Everything is based on him. He is our capstone. If you look at an archway, that middle stone holds that arch together. He's our flagstone, the biggest stone. (laughs) He is a living stone. And he came to make us living stones because we are formed in his image, right? And he was 
rejected by men, but chosen by God. The same way we are, will be rejected by men <laughs> for living for God. But you are chosen by God. And you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Look around. Look all around the auditorium. That is the spiritual house, not the building, right? <laughs> Every man and woman sitting here today is the spiritual house that God is building. Every Christian meeting around the globe today on this Sunday is the spiritual house that God is building, living stones. And that picture of living stones is so interesting. Pastor Roger and Pastor Nicola went to um, Israel, and they did quite a spiritual tour. They had Bible study every day, and they had to do Bible study every night to prepare for the next day when they went to certain sites that were in the Bible so they could understand the full context, right? And something he came back with that has always stuck with me is this concept of living stones. Because there are certain places in Israel where you go, and they are just stones scattered in fields. And they're kind of like stuck in the mud, right? They're just stuck in the sand. But the idea is, is that when you pick those stones up and you put them into a building, they become living stones. And this is what Jesus is talking about. This is the picture that he's talking about. Because we can just be stuck in the mud. We can just be stones scattered all over in the mud. Stuck in the mud. <laughs> no value, no purpose. No meaning. But the second you pick those stones up and you shape them a little bit and you put them into a wall, purpose manifests, right? There's a mission and a vision and a point, and that's what makes you a living stone. And so you are living stones. You are no longer just isolated lumps stuck in the mud. I am not just an isolated lump stuck in the mud. I am being built into the house of God. And what is the point of that? To be a holy priesthood. Holy means set apart. We learned a lot about that in Leviticus, didn't we? You are set apart to God. That word holy isn't about moral perfection. It's about making Jesus first, putting him first. It's about agreeing with him in all things, even if we quite, haven't quite figured out how to live like that yet. That's what that word holy means. You are holy. You have been set apart as a living stone to be built into the house of God. But you are also a priesthood. This is so important. We also learned about this in Leviticus. That in the old days you had to go to a priest, take your sacrifice and confess your sins. And then he would place the animal on the fire for you. What did we just sing today? You, you provide the fire, I'll provide the sacrifice. We don't come via priests. You are a priest. I am a priest. Why? Because the task of a priest is to minister to the Lord, to minister before the Lord. When you obey Jesus, when you obey his commands, you are ministering to God. When you show love to somebody who doesn't deserve it, you are ministering to God. When you show forgiveness, you are ministering to God, right? When you serve each other, you are ministering before him. We have no need of a priest anymore. Jesus is our high priest. And every one of us functions as a priest. And what do we do in this house? We offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We, we worshipped and praised our God today. We acknowledged his greatness and his might and his presence in our life and his value to us, right? That's a spiritual sacrifice. 
Every time we deny ourselves and follow Christ, pick up our cross and get discipled, that's a spiritual sacrifice. And again, loving each other. Love costs. Love is expensive. <laughs> Detachment is cheap and easy. But love is darn expensive. You will run your credit card debt up high if you start loving. You see, in the Old Testament, and it's actually so beautiful, God lived in a tent. The tabernacle of Moses, right? A tabernacle just means a tent. Well, why did he do that? Because his people lived in tents. And God's whole purpose and whole point is that he wants to be close to us. They wouldn't come close to him because they were too scared, because the price was too high. So what did he do? He tabernacled with them. The God of the universe let himself live in a tent in a desert because that was the only way he could be close to his people. It was by his will and by his standard. They had to set it up exactly the way he wanted it to because we don't come to God on our terms. That's cheap and disrespectful. We come to him as he demands we come to him because he is God and he created us. But do you get the point? He lived in a tent like they lived in a tent. And then later on, David has this vision of a temple for God. God doesn't ask him. God doesn't command him. This is what's amazing about David. David says, what he says is, my palace is beautiful and you're living in a tent. Let me build the most magnificent temple for you. And God says, that's okay, we're going to do that. But unfortunately, you can't build it because your hands are too covered in blood. <laughs> but that didn't stop David. He spent his whole life preparing all the material. And then his son Solomon built that temple. And by all accounts, it was magnificent and glorious. But God never asked for that. But he saw it as fitting because it was a sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice to him. And then that temple got destroyed, sadly, and a second temple was built during the time of Ezra and Zerubbabel, and that lasted all the way into Herod, and Herod sort of spruced it up to try and gain favor with the people. But the tragedy of that second temple, especially Herod's temple, was there was no presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant had been taken into exile and disappeared. But who walked the streets of Jerusalem at the time of Herod? <laughs> See, when that veil tore, there was just an empty room because the Ark of the Covenant himself was hanging on a cross. And what happened when he died and rose again is you and I became the temple of God. Think about that for a minute. You are the Ark of the Covenant. Because you cannot be a Christian without making covenant with Jesus. And who lives inside of you now? The Holy Spirit. God himself by the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of God. And 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Look at the person next to you and say, You are the temple of God. <laughs> it sounds weird and culty, right? <laughs> but it's absolutely true right now in every single one of us, in every Christian believer in the world, the Holy Spirit is alive and active. We didn't come alive in the river. We came alive because we just let the Holy Spirit be life. And we can come alive in the river any second we want to. We should do it a lot more often, right? 
And so you and I as individual Christians are living stones being built into God's temple. And this is the inescapable truth of this. You are the church. (laughs) The second you became born again, you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you automatically became a member of the church of Jesus Christ, whether you wanted to or not. You see, he signed in his blood so you could become a member. And kind of like Virgin Active, you can never get out of that contract. (laughs) I haven't had the misfortune of experiencing that myself, but I've heard so many people complain. You are a part of the church whether you want to be or not, whether you like it or not. Now take another look around at all these people. This is as glamorous as it gets. (laughs) But it's kind of awesome, right? It's really spectacular. And so I want to make this point well. The church is not a building. The church is the people of God gathering unto Him. The church is not a system of methodology. We have some kind of methodology because we have to organize, right? But it is people expressing the life of God in a variety of ways. And currently, there is a lot of criticism against the church. When I say currently, I mean for the last 2,000 years. (laughs) A lot of criticism. And maybe we are criticizing the church. I know that recently I've looked through the world and I've gone, oh my dear Lord Jesus, (laughs) help your church. I'm criticizing the church sometimes. Maybe we're criticizing one particular church or one particular stream of Christianity. But there's a lot of criticism against the church. And yes, can we get honest? There is some seriously problematic stuff happening in the world that is instigated by the church. There was some pretty problematic stuff that happened in this country that was instigated by the church, right? Can we all just be honest about that? But this is something we have to remember. What is unique about the church is that we are a club whose members are still coming. (laughs) We are a club that exists for people who haven't yet joined us. And they're called sinners. Now look at the person next to you and say, you're a sinner. No, don't do that. (laughs) But that's the truth, right? We're all sinners saved by grace. And there are a whole lot of sinners out there who need to come here. And this is why the church is problematic. Because we're never ever supposed to be perfect. But what we are supposed to be is fully and completely and utterly submitted to Jesus Christ. What we are supposed to be is a family that welcomes other people in as broken as we are. Because this is the weirdest thing on the planet, that us as broken sinful people can help and encourage and heal you as broken sinful people. And that has always been God's plan. Isolation by myself, me and Jesus are good, that's just a lie. The cross of Jesus Christ has two poles on it, right? One from us to God. He makes us right with God, but then he wants to make us right with each other. And Throughout the Bible, if you go and read, God deals with Israel as a corporate. 
Yes, he speaks to individuals. Yes, there are individual calls. Yes, we know the names of heroes and even worse sinners than us in the Bible. But God deals with his people as a whole because the vision is what? Every tribe, every tongue, every culture standing before the throne of God and giving him his reward, right? And so me and Jesus, if you are right with Jesus and you're not right with anybody else in the world, you are not right with Jesus. It's as simple as that. And our faith is not secret and our faith is not private. Obviously, they are private things, right? But we are a corporate. We are the church, the living stones of God. So the church is not perfect because we are not perfect. But we are being formed into his image. Ephesians 5.25, it's not on the screen, but it talks about the fact that one day Jesus is going to come back for his church, right? But this is the description of what that church looks like. A glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or anything, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Are we there yet? Can I postulate to you that Jesus is not coming back soon? I mean, unless we fix our act up really fast, like next week, we could do it by next week, right? If we take a lot of submission. But the chances are, because that's the church is coming back for. So instead of waiting for the end times, we need to be living like that. And that's our responsibility. That's your responsibility, my responsibility. Because who is the church of Jesus? You're getting it. And this is another inescapable truth. Jesus is head over heel, heels nuts, crazy in love with his church. Right now, we are his betrothed. It's an old-fashioned word. We are his affianced. <laughs> Just a weird French word. What am I saying? We are promised as his bride. We are in the process of preparing for the marriage. And Jesus loves us. Ephesians 5.25. Oh, that's confusing. Um, that one is on the screen. <laughs> I don't know what the other scripture about the <laughs> without blemish. It's, it's, it's 26, I think. Any case, it says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus loved you so much, he died for you. Jesus loved you so much, he rose from the dead for you. He loves you so much, he's going to come back to resurrect you into glory one day. Jesus loves this church, and that is very important for us. I found it difficult to love the church sometimes. But it doesn't matter. Jesus loves the church. And so even when I'm struggling, I have to love the church. Jesus loves the church. And so even when you're having problems with the church, guess what? You have to love the church. And that's just loving yourself. If we don't love the church, we are not in agreement with Jesus. And if we're going on to start a perfect church, well, you better not join that because you will mess it up. (laughs) 
See, the church is founded by Christ and built by Christ on the revelation of Christ. Jesus instituted the church as an organism and as an organization. Oh, I don't do organized religion. <laughs> what the heck do you do then? Psychedelic mushroom nonsense. <laughs> because the second you put a group of people together, there has to be organization. Jesus was not scared to organize. The disciples come, what are we going to do? There's 12,000 people and they need to eat lunch. Jesus organized. Bring me, bring me the fish and bread. Jesus organized all the time. Matthew 16, 5, 15 to 21 says this. This is Jesus talking to the apostle Peter, right? He's still called Simon at this point. And Jesus says to him, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So what's happening here? Peter, by the Holy Spirit, receives a revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Now, we read the Bible 2,000 years later, and we're like, what the heck is your problem, Peter? <laughs> but he didn't know that before. He didn't understand. None of them did. This is a revelation that Peter receives from God. And as he declares it, the church is instituted. Why? Because that is the rock. That revelation is the rock that the church of Jesus Christ is built on. How do you become a Christian? You believe in your heart and confess your mouth, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. He can't be Lord unless he's God. He is the Son of God. And then he tells Peter what the church is going to do. He says the church... He's going to build the church, what? On that revelation that he is the son of God. And then it says that the gates of Hades will not overcome it. We are not hanging on for dear life, hoping that the demons leave us alone for a second. We are the church triumphant. The gates of hell will not overcome it. We're not on the verge of, of near death. We are the church triumphant. We are the church who possesses the keys to the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? That we have access to God sitting on his throne in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. That's the keys. We are being awful, awful stewards of those keys. And we're making all kinds of non-essential stuff super important and dramatic and creating all kinds of doctrine that just doesn't need to exist instead of just, just being the keys of the kingdom. You see, the church has the authority to unlock heaven and lock up hell. Whatever you loose in heaven, <laughs> loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Think about that for a minute. The degree to which heaven or hell are released on earth 
is dependent on the church. Jesus should be our focus. Jesus should be our motivation. He should be the point. He should be the beginning and the end and every step in between. Not the end times. Not spiritual warfare. Not my pet little doctrine. Jesus. And that's how we're going to release heaven. Because he is heaven, right? Heaven is wherever he is. And so Jesus founded the church on himself. He built, built on the revelation that he is the son of God. And we are the church. We are that spiritual family. And so the New Testament has a number of pictures or allegories that help us understand what the church is. We're a temple. We've spoken about that. We're a bride. Yes, gentlemen, even you and I are brides. Um, ugliest brides you've ever seen, but God loves us with all his heart. Um, we are an army. We are a vineyard. We are flocks. We are a body, and tonight we're going to focus on the fact that we are a family. And these are all allegories and pictures that teach us things about who we are as the church of Jesus Christ, right? And so Acts 2 describes how the early church modeled spiritual family. We find it in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the, fel and, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders were, and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. They gathered in the temple courts, but they also met together in their homes. And they were devoted to each other. And they became a spiritual family. We see them exhibiting many of the characteristics of a family. They ate together. They shared their possessions and even sold their possessions if they needed to take care of each other. But they also focused on the word of God the teachings of the apostles, to fellowship. And that's not just hanging out with each other, that's engaging in each other's lives, helping each other, challenging each other, supporting, encouraging, comforting each other. The breaking of bread, that's communion, right? And praying together. That's still what we do in the church today. We've, we, apart from taking communion tonight, we've done all of those things already. <laughs> And these actions not only depict the attitude and actions of a family, but this is also the kind of bond and relationships that develop in a connect group. Who was here last week? Do you remember that sneak attack where we put all of you in a connect group without you realizing it? And then you had a connect group, and then you all loved it so much you immediately ran off and joined one, right? I hope. <laughs> That's why we do connect groups. Am I going to be a stuck-in-the-mud, isolated stone? Or am I going to be a living stone put into the temple? It's your choice, right? And there's, there is family language found throughout Scripture. We are children of God. 1 John 3 verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. 
You are a child of God. You have all the rights that a child of God has. You have access to all the blessings and benefits that a child of God has. Stand in that identity. We are a family of believers, Galatians 6 verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. So we should do good to everyone, sinners, but especially to the church. And here's my challenge. If you don't love the church, whatever you're doing out there isn't going to be authentic. And thirdly, we are in this together. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And what we need to understand, that when we're talking about spiritual family, it really is spiritual. You know, I went through, we went through a season as a church where we sang a lot of songs like, all I need is you. You're all I need. You're the only thing I need, God. We sang a lot of songs like that. And that, that, that's true, right? But because he is God, he dictates how we get him. And here is a very uncomfortable truth. There are some things from God that you will only get through the broken person next to you. There are some things you will only get from God through me. Now, if I was God, I would have a totally different system. But the world would be utterly broken if I was God. So let's be grateful that I'm not. And that's something we have to make our peace with. Reading your Bible, praying, worshiping, all of that stuff is good. But without fellowship, without connection, there are aspects of God you will never, ever have. Because we are limited by ourselves. But when all of us meet together, Wow, amazing things happen. Something else we have to understand about spiritual family is that spiritual family is eternal. Think about that for a minute. So we better sort out the issues now, right? Because <laughs> you're stuck with me for the next 450 billion years. But there's another thing to this, and this is a strange thing to consider. Biblically, marriage is only temporary. Every marriage is temporary because you're going to die eventually. <laughs> and if one of you survives, <laughs> and if one of you survives, that survivor is fully allowed to remarry because they stopped being married to you the second you died. And so within spiritual family, Marriage is unique and covenantal, okay? And the primary function of marriage is to bring forth godly children, right? That's why we make the covenant, and we are unique and exclusive in marriage. Godly, legitimate children. But it's only on earth. There is no marriage in heaven. Well, I'll tell you there is a kind of marriage in heaven, but we'll get there in a moment. But there's no gender in heaven, there's no sex in heaven, there's no procreation in heaven. What are we all in heaven? Every married couple will be sisters and brothers. <laughs> Weird, right? And if you, if you were that person who survived two or three spouses, well, you'll all just be sisters and brothers, no husbands and wives. So what is the marriage in heaven? Will we get married to Jesus? There's only one marriage. 
But it goes a step further. There's only one father in heaven. If your whole family is born again following Jesus and your mom and dad are part of that, when you get to heaven, you're all just brothers and sisters. Your father can't go, get me water, rake the garden. No. <laughs> Cindy's feeling the freedom. She's, she's buying this. But it's so important. They're only brothers and sisters. And in fact, there's not even gender in heaven, so we are Adelphoi, which is the combined word for brothers and sisters used all through the Bible. Every time you see brothers in your Bible, it's Adelphoi. It means all of us. Isn't that interesting? And so if you're married, that is your priority. Yes, it's exclusive, it's, it's covenantal, it's unique, absolutely. But if you're married and you're not pushing into spiritual family, you're going to struggle those first couple of thousand years in heaven. I mean, I'm being very human, right? <laughs> because you're not going to know what's going on. And so single people need single friends and single fellowship, and married couples need married friends, and families need family friends, and we should all be mixing up in any case because singles also need married friends and family friends, and they also need single friends. But the point is, is that we are going to be spiritual family for all eternity. So let's get with the program and figure out how to make it joyful so before we get to heaven, we can fill the benefits of it, right? And so just like we cannot choose our biological family, like the only way for a human to be on this planet is to be born through a family, no matter what that family might look like, no matter how it functioned, whether it was absolutely amazing or an absolute disaster. That's the only way we get here, right? And you have no choice. Your parents wanted to have babies, so they did all the things that need to make babies, and then there you came. They didn't know they were getting you. You didn't know you were getting them. But here we are. It's exactly the same in the spiritual family, right? You don't have choices. You can't go, yes, Jesus, I take you. But Pastor Greg, please keep him. Um, sorry for you. You can't do that. But just like in, because remember the family is an allegory, and so in families there are benefits, there's identity, there's belonging, there's consideration and hopefully love and guidance and acceptance, right? But there are also responsibilities. We all eat at the same time. Somebody has to wash the dishes. And if mom cooked the meal, who's going to wash the dishes? <laughs> Carabo, sorry, brother. <laughs> and so there are responsibilities in family. And it is exactly the same in spiritual family. The benefits of spiritual family, identity in God, connection, community, fellowship, access to a whole vast network of spiritual gifts and people who can help on many levels, right? But there are also responsibilities. You cannot just come rock up here and be and do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And, and this is where the church is running into some trouble in the world today because you are an individual. But when you walk in this door, there is a social agreement. There is a spiritual family agreement. We cannot come here and just fight with each other and just tell each other off or just say, I don't care if you, if you don't like me being naked. That's, I want to praise God like David did. Not acceptable. We will shut that down because it's not good for, for the whole body, right? 
And this is where the church is running into trouble. We do not deny individuality. You must be yourself. But part of being a Christian is loving other people and respecting other people and considering other people. Do you get that? So that's one of the responsibilities. But there are actually 51 listed responsibilities. So we're not going to read all of them. But I am going to read most of them. <laughs> These are called the one another's. So, there are 51. One third of the one another commands deal with the unity of the church. Now, these are actual commands. Can you see how they're written? There's no option. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble with one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another before beginning the Eucharist, before taking communion. Don't just rush in here and do it yourself, right? Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. I really hope that's allegorical. But we also do not condone cannibalism. Um, don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Jesus help us. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another and don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Can you see these are absolute commandments? It's not giving you an option. It's not giving conditions. Can you see that? So before we move to some of the others, we need to obey these commands. We're very concerned about pleasing God, aren't we? We are. I want to please God. I want to know what God's will is. Well, let me help you. Because what we spend most of our time with, and as a pastor and a prophetic minister, this is what I see all the time. Who should I marry? What job should I do? Should I move here? What car should I drive? Now, those questions matter. But the Bible doesn't tell us anything about that. What it commands us to do is this. And we're so worried about that that we're fasting and praying for those things that actually are not that important. And we're ignoring all of these. And we're just doing whatever we want to regarding these. And recently I've really been challenged by these one another's. And I feel like the Lord's been saying to me, Greg, if you get this right, you're pleasing me. And if you're pleasing me, if you get this right, maybe all that other stuff becomes a whole lot easier to deal with. Maybe when you're loving and forgiving and confessing and bearing with them, maybe suddenly you, you see somebody in the foyer who's doing the same thing and happens to be the opposite gender of you. And maybe you suddenly realize, man, they're actually amazing. Wow, that's a great heart. <laughs> that's somebody you should marry. Don't pray to God. Just make a decision and ask her. But are you with me? So let's read these together. Let's read them aloud together. Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble among one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another before beginning the Eucharist. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. Don't boastfully challenge or envy one another. Gently, patiently tolerate one another. Be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving to one another. 
Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another and don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess sins to one another. And what happens if we obey all three of these commands? That word unity, that manifests. And God is very concerned about our unity. Because that is why the church has got so much criticism, because we can't agree on anything. But these are the things we should all agree on. And if we all agree on this, all the nonsense that the world hates about the church might just go away, right? The next category is love. And one-third of them instruct Christians to love one another. So if you look, you'll see that there are way more Scripture references that all say the same thing. Do you notice how important that is? Love one another. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven times. We are admonished, commanded to love one another. Do you think that matters to God? Do you think God's serious about us loving one another? Right? And through love, serve one another. Serve one another. Tolerate one another in love. See, before it was just unity. Oh, John is so irritating, but you know, for the sake of unity, I'm going to just... Awesome, brother. But now it says I have to tolerate him in love. I've got to get over myself and love him. John is no, by no means irritating. He's amazing. <laughs> Greet one another with the kiss of love. Maybe, you know, ask before... <laughs> Let, let's go with symbolism here, but yes, you get it. Like, if it was part of our culture, we would kiss you hello with joy. Be, to, be devoted to one another in love. See, when you're devoted to somebody, you need to know them. You need to know what's happening in their life. You need to understand that you're not seeing them for two weeks. And you need to have some way of contacting them. So we can't be devoted to everybody in this church, right? But again, connect group, connect group, connect group. When you hit a brick wall one day in your life and you are not in a connect group, who is going to know? And we are forbidden to be psychic. We should be more prophetic, but prophecy isn't about knowing when somebody's going through a bad time necessarily, because we should be responsible and put up our hand and say, I need my church. I need my peeps around me today. I need some tolerance with love. <laughs> I need some bearing with, I need some comfort. But if you're not a part, if you're not devoted, how are we going to miss you? And so let's read the love commands together. Love one another. Through love, serve one another. Tolerate one another in love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Be devoted to one another in love. Commands. Do you want to please God? Do that. The last category I'm going to put up is about humility. And these are 15% stress and attitude of humility and deference among believers. Deference is honor and respect and making way for other people, right? So let's see. Give preference to one another in honor. Wow. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Ooh, Jesus. There we go again. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. Again, maybe ask permission. <laughs> Do it outside, not here. 
Don't be haughty. Be of the same mind. If you're the only one in the church disagreeing, <laughs> take a moment and sit humbly before Jesus. <laughs> you can also come talk to the pastors, right? We will listen to you. But be humble. Be subject to one another. Submit to each other. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. That is how our attitude should be to each other. And imagine if we, if we practice this with each other, where we're loved and honored and it's safe, it's going to be a lot easier to practice it out there in the world, right? And maybe some of that criticism that comes to the church about us being arrogant and intolerant and all that might fade away a little bit if we are more humble. And so let's read these commands together. Give preference to one another in honor. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Serve one another. Wash one another's feet. Don't be haughty. Be of the same mind. Be subject to one another. Close yourselves in humility toward one another. And then the last category is also about 15%. And the reason I didn't put it up because it has a whole lot of commands to married people and I don't want to confuse the issue. But you can go look them up. 51 one another's. And I'm really, really wanting you to hear this. These are commands. Do you get that? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. The other stuff is not about commands. The other stuff is we should know Jesus so well, we should be so self-aware in ourselves that we can make good decisions about that. And of course we can consult God and he will give us wisdom, right? But those things are not going to please him. These things please him. Please be aware of how important these things are. And so that's where we're going to end tonight, is how are you doing with these one another's? How are you doing at spiritual family? You know, we are human beings, and we will get hurt. You put five people in a room, and somebody will be unhappy. <laughs> or three will be unhappy. Because we're human and we've got issues and we're trying to work through things and we're asking God to heal us and we're trying to be better. But we are the body of Christ. We are a family together and we need to help each other and encourage each other. And yes, churches can be hurtful places. Leaders can cause damage. But, but Jesus is the point. We gather for him and to him. We gather because of him and by him. And he is the goal. And so tonight, just take a little bit of inventory, inventory for yourself. Just, we're going to be quiet for a minute. And just, just talk to the Lord. Talk to yourself. Where are you? What is one of the most difficult things for you to do on that list? Ask the Lord where it's coming from. If you need to forgive somebody, forgive them. If you need to repent, repent. There's so much grace here tonight. So much mercy. Jesus loves his church. He loves you. He wants the best for you. You're his family. You're his kids. So, Lord, we just come before you, Lord, and we just assess our hearts, Lord. And we just invite you, Holy Spirit, come with your conviction. Come with your gentle wind, Lord, and just show us where we're at, Lord. And whatever we need to change in us, God, just come and give us grace to acknowledge that to you tonight, Lord. We love being your children. We love being your brothers and sisters. We love being each other's brothers and sisters, Lord. 
And we want to be better at it. Just take a moment and do deal with God. Just, let's just take a moment to repent. We repent, Jesus, for where we have stood in a place of judgment instead of a place of love. We repent, Jesus, for where we have rejected those that you have accepted. We repent for where we have been proud instead of being humble, where we have resisted your family. We bring before you, Jesus, our very real hurts, places where people in the church have hurt us, where things have been said and done that did not feel like love. Thank you, Jesus, that you are, um, you're the place of our healing. You're the place of our comfort. And Father, we don't want previous hurt and offense to stop us from walking in the plan that you have for us. We don't want previous hurt and offense to withhold the place that is the temple of God, where we encounter your presence when we, where we encounter your plan and your perfection. Because you've designed it like that, that this is your bride. We don't want to uh, reject the bride because of our own offense. We want to be included in the bride. We want to be included in the church. And so, Father, we ask you for grace. We ask you for grace to forgive. We ask you for grace to love people that we don't always trust, <laughs> people that may have hurt us, people that we don't know if they're going to hurt us. We ask you for grace for that, Lord God. We thank you that you enable us, that your grace is sufficient for all things. I thank you, Lord, that there are so many testimonies of great spiritual family that there are so many testimonies of how spiritual family uplifts and holds and comforts and saves lives, brings breakthrough, carries one another in difficult times, carries one another's burdens. And so we declare that that is what we hope for. That is what we believe, that we're not going to let hurt and offense and bad experiences stop us from experiencing that kind of family. We commit today that we want to be that family for one another, that we will be people that will love and be present in difficult times, that will minister to one another, that will carry one another's burdens, that will bear with one another in prayer and supplication, that will walk together. We will be that family, Lord. And so we thank you, Jesus. We thank you for this church. We thank you for that, Lord.